Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Coming up, we'll hear about the Actors Express production of Desire Under the Elms. Plus, today marks the 45th anniversary of Elvis Presley's death, and later this hour, City Lights producer Summer Evans tells us about an upcoming tribute show at Eddie's Attic. But first, 13 years ago, the podcasting world got a heck of a lot funnier as Scott Ackerman entered the realm with a bang. Well, two bangs, to be exact. His award-winning podcast, Comedy Bang Bang, blends sketch comedy with celebrity conversations, and it's been called often strange, consistently hilarious, and always unpredictable by Entertainment Weekly. Comedy Bang Bang is currently on their North American tour and comes to the Tabernacle tomorrow evening, August 17th. Before Scott Ackerman hits the stage, he joins me now via Zoom. Scott, welcome to City Lights. Hi, thank you so much for having me. That was a very NPR uh, intro. I really appreciated it. (laughs) Thank you. I worked on that pretty hard. So, Scott, for the unfamiliar, will you tell us about your journey into comedy? Into comedy, yeah. Well, uh, I I started out as an actor and uh, uh, sometimes playwright. And uh, in my mid-20s, I had a a friend tell me that they really didn't like any of the plays I was writing. (laughs) uh, But she said I was a really, you know, around the house, I was a really funny guy. And she had some friends who were in comedy, and she could get me to perform with them on stage. And those friends happened to be people like, Bob Odenkirk, David Cross, Sarah Silverman, Margaret Cho, Janine Garofalo. Um, I ended up just randomly performing on a night with all of those people. And it went really well. And I just kind of became a comedian after that. Who is your friend that had all these high-end comedy legends as besties? She, Her name was Maleva Barbula. And I was in A Christmas Carol uh, in at Sacramento Theater Company with her. And then we we both moved down to L.A. And, and her roommate uh, was Karen Kilgariff, who is a comedian. And uh, that's kind of how I just met everyone. And, and the second performance, Bob Odenkirk came up to me afterwards and was like, hey, that was really funny. Do you want to write on my television show, Mr. Show? And so then I did. OK, first of all. Good Bob imitation. That was well done. (laughs) But also, that's nuts. After the second time seeing you perform, he invited you to write for Mr. Show. Yeah, I I liken it to the fact that back in the 90s, the internet wasn't really around, so (laughs) no one knew how to get good writers. (laughs) Um, But... But yeah, it was... uh, Bob really kind of mentored me and would appear in live sketch shows that I did and and finally let me write on his show. And, and that was my first uh, job, how I got into the WGA and and uh, writing on his sketch show, which was, in my opinion, was the funniest show on TV. So I was thrilled. Yeah, it was it was absolutely fantastic. What a great start for you. So skipping far down the road, you end up with Comedy Bang Bang, and it is a blend of scripted sketches and improv conversations with celebrities and really fun games. May I ask where you got the inspiration for your format? I've been doing a live show, kind of a stand-up showcase along with comedians doing characters for 10 years at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater in Los Angeles. I've been producing it, and I'd seen a lot of comedians 
go up and do these really funny characters. And so I got uh, this radio show at, at a local LA radio station, and I thought it was just going to be me interviewing comedians like uh, most podcasts are sure. <laughs> in the com. <laughs> um, but uh, I started out that way, but then a few episodes in, I had some comedians on playing characters and I really enjoyed the back and forth of me trying to throw them off, asking weird questions and them being genius Im improvisers and responding with really funny answers. It really reminded me of one of my favorite things, which was Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner's The 2000 Year Old Man. Oh, yeah. Um, which really had that kind of like feeling of people having fun and trying to kind of mess with each other, but also being geniuses. So I, I really enjoyed that part of the the show. So I just kind of said, you know what, the whole show is just going to be this. And so that's what it is, is I'll have celebrities on, but then me and the celebrity talk to these comedians playing fake weirdos uh, <laughs> who have strange things that they have come on the show to talk about. Indeed. And in 2012, the podcast turned into a TV show of the same name with the amazingly talented comedian, actor, beatboxer, musician, Reggie Watts. How did you and your team transition from radio slash podcasting to TV? Well, the interesting part about it was when I was offered the show, because the people at, at the network were just fans of the podcast, I had assumed initially that it would be a lot like the podcast, where it would be almost the production value of, say, Watch What Happens Live, <laughs> where it would be like a live half hour conversation, you know, between me and these comedians. But when I realized they were only going to order 10 episodes, I realized that you know, talk shows in general are sort of ephemeral. You don't go back and rewatch reruns of them on purpose. Right. <laughs> you may happen <laughs> across them if you're if you're just up at night. But I really wanted it to be a show that people would go back and watch several times. So what we did was was we translated it and made it a little more visual, uh, a little less in the moment, and uh, a little more of a statement. Now that said, it had all of the elements. It had Reggie Watts, like you said, who. Uh, did the theme song for the podcast as the band leader. Um, and then eventually Kid Cudi and Weird Al Yankovic became the the band leaders after right. Reggie left. But it just had more sketches and it had more uh, visual stuff. And and what I'm really proud about is, is the fact that I still get messages of people telling me it's their comfort watch. They've watched Aww. every episode 10, 20 times. And that's that's what I really wanted to achieve with it is is make something that lasted and and had a longstanding uh, likability factor. Well, mission accomplished. That's so sweet. I like that you get feedback from people who are actually really enjoying what you create. And that's just lovely. Let me give people... you some feedback right now. <laughs> You're doing a great job. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. All right. So on the TV show, one of my favorite things was that you had many, many nicknames on the show, including... Hot Saucerman, Weirder Scott, Flip Flopperman, and Scott Flava Bean. The TV show title crawl never quite seemed to get your name right. And each episode showed a fake name at the bottom of the screen that sounded maybe somewhat similar to yours. Do you have any favorites that you could share with us? Wow. Well, God, there were 110 of them, as I recall. There, there actually is a randomizer generator GIF that... Uh, you can it it just plays all of the names successively, and you can stop on one and and figure out which one is your nickname. Nice. Um, but I think you know, Hot Saucerman was the one. <laughs> Hot Saucerman was the one that was the original, and that's was sort of born out of Thomas Lennon from Reno Nine One One being okay. on the show and getting my name wrong. <laughs> really? Um, yeah, and not not on purpose, obviously. But he was playing a a character called Little Gary, who was a uh, uh, one. Uh, foot high, uh, strange, uh, horribly <laughs> scarred gentleman, <laughs> um, and he he thought my name was Hot Hot Saucerman. Um, so it's it was kind of born out of that. And then anytime I would introduce myself on the on the podcast, I would get my name my own name wrong. Right. And so that so our director of the of the first few seasons, Ben Berman, really liked that element of the podcast and decided to put that in every time I introduced myself, he would get the wrong Chiron underneath. And it, it just became something that 
has kind of stuck around to this day when people, anytime people write to me, they always kind of do a, a fake play on my name. So it's, it's really cool. <laughs> I'm assuming your mom and your family does that now too. Well, it would take my mom and family uh, liking my <laughs> career oh, choice no. and watching what I do. <laughs> no, that's not fair. My mom, oh. my mom loved the show. So how could she not? So another thing on the show, you have the plug bag at the end of the show. Could you share how it got started? And for those who are unfamiliar, would you describe it? Well, the you know, on a talk show, everyone is there sort of to plug their projects. Um, and sometimes the entire interview can be about that. And on Comedy Bang Bang, I think we do a real interview and a fake interview where I ask really dumb questions of the person. It's it's not like doing a normal stop on your press tour. So a lot of times the celebrity who's on the show doesn't get an opportunity to actually plug what they're <laughs> there to plug. So we have a section at the end of the show called the plug bag, which we uh, open, as we say, we open up the plug bag. And, and the interesting thing about that is there would be a theme song for it that we would record every year. And one year, I got very confused and thought we were recording the closing of the plug bag theme, but we were actually recording the opening theme with Ben Schwartz, uh, the improv comedian who's really great. And so I told him to sing about opening it, but it was really about closing it. So that's a tradition <laughs> that has lasted now for seven years, maybe, that we get it wrong. And when we're closing the plug bag, we are actually singing about opening it. So it's 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 a very confusing show. <laughs> Indeed it is. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Droves, in for Lois Reitzes, and my guest is writer, actor, comedian, and Comedy Bang Bang host, Scott Ackerman. Well, Scott, you obviously know comedy very well, and in 2010, you teamed up with Jeff Ulrich. And together you founded the podcast comedy network Earwolf. Podcasts were still fairly new at that time. So what was it like venturing into this new territory and founding a podcast network that then launched so many other careers? You know, when I when I first started doing Comedy Bang Bang, like I said, it was on the radio. Um, but we also podcasted it. And I, I had heard of podcasts. I'd been on a couple, but I didn't really know that much about them. But I quickly found out that way more people listened to podcasts worldwide than they did for the radio show. So sometimes, you know, there'd be 500 people listening to the radio show, but I'd check the podcast numbers and there would be about 2000. This was mm -hmm. in the early days. And so I, I, quickly started to get fascinated with podcasts and I would go to all these comedians and say like, Hey, you know, we're, we're out here at the local theaters here in LA putting on shows for a hundred people, but these podcasts, thousands of people listen to them and you can have a worldwide audience. So a lot of people didn't really understand it because they, they heard podcasts and they assumed it was something for nerds or you had to be a computer genius in order to listen to it. <laughs> uh, Jeff and I were out there evangelizing about them and trying to get comedians to do them, trying to get advertisers to advertise on them. And it took a few years, but finally people came around and now I think podcasts are, you know, here to stay and, and they're just getting bigger and bigger. Indeed. Yeah. But I know what you're talking about. Back in the day, you had to try to explain to someone what an RSS feed was. It took a hot minute for people to catch on. Yeah. I remember when we first were out there trying to explain what podcasts were, the process for listening to one was you had to download it on your iTunes in your computer, and then you had to hook a cable up to your iPod and then sync your iPod <laughs> <laughs> um, which would take 45 minutes in order to get it onto your iPod. And then you had to go into your car and hopefully you had an auxiliary cable and a car that had an auxiliary cable <laughs> where you could plug it in and then somehow listen to it on your way to work. In the early days of the company, we read articles about how cars were going to have Bluetooth systems where you could automatically listen to something that was on your iPod. And we were like, oh, okay, the future is coming. We just have to sort of wait it out. Right. And the future is here. Hey, what a glorious age to be alive. 
Look what we did. Uh, sure. <laughs> if you say so. <laughs> Maybe sometimes. So you also co-created the hilarious talk show between two ferns with Zach Galifianakis. Why do you think this form of short comedy where Zach makes fun of A-list celebrities has maintained popularity for so long? I think when we first started Between Two Ferns, celebrity culture just was at an all-time high of obsequiousness. Um, you know, anytime you watch a talk show, uh, the interview that you're watching between the host and a celebrity has been pre-planned to death. Um, I've done a few talk shows here and there, and every time you do one, the producer calls you and has approximately three to five conversations really detailing how the conversation is going to go so there's no margin for error. And I think when people watch talk shows nowadays, they can feel that and they can feel that the host and the guest are not doing something real. So I think that's why it was so popular when when we first came out with it uh, 10 or 11 years ago was it it seemed like, hey, here was a host who didn't care about making sure the interview went well. Um, in fact, he was going to ask rude questions. The, <laughs> the guest was going to get upset with the host. And it just seemed a little more real than than the fake interviews that are supposed to be real. Um, and so I, I, I really think that, uh, you know, that was a big part of it. And then the other part of it is we all like to see celebrities getting insulted because they need to be sometimes. <laughs> So your close friend and fellow comedian, Paul F. Tompkins, is joining you on much of the tour. He's also a frequent guest on the podcast, often imitating other celebrities or creating his own characters. By the way, one of my absolute favorites was when I think he was portraying a version of Andrew Lloyd Webber and Adam Scott was on the show. And as he was approaching the couch, everyone stood. <laughs> then he looked at you and he was like, now you sit. And he looked at Adam and he's like, now you sit. And then I sit because of status. <laughs> is he coming to Atlanta with you? Paul is doing something really interesting on this tour, which is we're now 13 years deep into the podcast. And on our, on our earlier tours, Paul didn't have the deep bench of characters that he has now. So for this tour, he has so many characters that he's created over the 13 years. He is attempting to never repeat a character. Oh, wow. So um, he's going to do different characters every single performance. And I hate to tell you he's already done Andrew Lloyd Webber on the tour. Oh, so okay. that will... That will probably not be repeated in Atlanta, but um, he's got so many amazing ones that uh, no one has ever been disappointed with a Paul F. Tompkins character, I'll tell you that much. No doubt. Oh, well, speaking of no doubt, one really off-the-wall question that I wanted to ask you. I read that before you made it big in the comedy world, you had a short stint as a musician and were playing in a band with the drummer of No Doubt. Is that accurate? It is accurate. It was my high school band. Yeah, we uh, when I was a senior in high school, uh, I was in a band called The Naked Postman. And it was uh, all of our first bands. I was the guitarist and singer. Uh, Adrian was the drummer. He had just learned how to play drums a couple weeks earlier, I think. <laughs> and then we had uh, another singer who was kind of more of a punk shouter kind of singer who was a really good looking guy called uh, David Ballinger from Chicago now who would take off his shirt um, while he sang. And that, that was a, a big draw um, <laughs> with all the other uh, high school people. Um, and then uh, a couple other people. And yeah, it was, it was fun. We, we played for probably a year together and then uh, we went to college and the band broke up and reformed without me <laughs> and with <laughs> some, someone else in it. And then they played for a couple of months. And then the auditions for No Doubt came up, which had been actually been uh, a lot of our favorite band. We'd been seeing them since 1985 Wow! Um, and would go see all of their performances around town. And so Adrian loved that band so much that he auditioned and kind of lied about how long he'd been playing drums. <laughs> Um, he's, I think he said he'd been playing for five years and he'd only been playing for about a year at that point. Um, but he's such a natural musician that he was the best choice for them. Do you still enjoy playing guitar occasionally? 
Every once in a while, um, usually it's by request. David Wayne uh, from the States and Stella and the director of a lot of great comedy movies, he occasionally he'll put out videos, especially during the, the pandemic, where he would stitch together everyone playing songs separately in their houses. And so I played uh, on one of those. Um, and I have a guitar that I'm looking at in my office right now that uh, every once in a while I'll pick up and play. So um, I do enjoy it. But but after a while, I had to just stop focusing on both comedy and music and and stop splitting my focus and just pick one. And I pick comedy. And I think it's worked out OK. Uh, kind of. I mean, I never heard you play guitar, but yeah, I think the comedy was probably the right choice for you. Good I job. play guitar about as well as I do comedy, which <laughs> is not not great. Uh, I'm I'm more of a dabbler, but uh... stop. All right. So, final question for you: Comedy Bang Bang has evolved a lot over the last decade. What do you see for the show's future? So, a lot of people, especially when you do something for over a decade, a lot of people start asking you questions like, "Oh, when are you going to stop? When are you going to oh. stop?" <laughs> like, <laughs> like they, like they want you to or something. But I really don't have any plans to stop doing it. I've, I've had some jobs in the past where I've been just sort of like marking time to get to an anniversary, like a 10 year anniversary or something. And and this is not one of them. I, I really just still enjoy it so much. And there is a, an avenue uh, that we're going to be exploring in 2023 with the show that we've never done before um, that I can't announce yet. I know you're about to beg Dang me it. to, and I'm just going to head it off at the pass <laughs> and tell you, I can't talk about it, but, but we're going to be doing something really cool in April uh, that we've never done before. And so, you know, look out for that. I mean, I don't know. I, I can't even tell you where to look for it, but I just open <laughs> your eyes from now until then, and maybe you'll see it. Comedian, producer, and writer Scott Ackerman. Comedy Bang Bang is live tomorrow night, August 17th at the Tabernacle, and more information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll hear about the Actors Express production of Desire Under the Elms. And later, City Lights producer Summer Evans celebrates the king of rock and roll, Elvis Presley. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Droves, in for Lois Reitzis, and it is great to have you along. Desire Under the Elms by playwright Eugene O'Neill explores themes such as lust, revenge, love, faith, and the need for a home of one's own. A production of the American Classic is on stage at Actors Express through August 28th. Artistic director Freddie Ashley is directing the play, and when he recently joined City Lights host Lois Reitzes, he began with a brief summary of the play. Well, Desire to the Elms is a 1924 play by Eugene O'Neill that centers on a remote farm in Maine and a father who has sort of driven his children really hard their whole lives and he has vanished for a couple of months, returning with a young bride, and everyone is sort of angling for ownership of the farm. Uh, the young bride and his son ultimately form a clandestine relationship, and the plot sort of spirals out from there. Mm. It's based on some Greek tragedies and Greek mythology. Yeah, inspired by the Greek tragedy of 
Phaedra, Hippolytus, and Theseus to further appreciate the richness of this play's story and references. Would you explain the Greek tale and how desire relates to it? Well, the the relationship to the Greek story is fairly surface. I mean, the similarity is that Phaedra was the stepmother to Hippolytus and they had an affair. And that's really where the similarities and O'Neill used that framework. Uh, he also was inspired by the works of August Strindberg to, to write the play. Strindberg was a huge influence on him. So he was taking a little bit from ancient Greece, a little bit from uh, Strindberg's expressionism. Mm. Now, among the principal characters, perhaps the most complicated is Abby, the seductive stepmother and new wife of Ephraim. Clearly, her arrival creates chaos. What motivates her? Abby is a woman who has had a really hard life. She tells her story to Eben. She's always wanted a home to call her own. And she married after working as a servant her whole life. Her husband turned out to be an alcoholic and her baby died and then her husband died. And she found herself in this endless cycle of servitude. And marrying Cabot gave her the opportunity finally to have a home to call her own. And so she arrives craving that stability and craving that sense of place. Hmm. Is there anything redeeming about her character? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think we can all understand what motivates her and we can only imagine how hard her life has been and why she goes to such lengths to attain it. I think also it's important to remember that she genuinely loves Eben, the son. They, they do form a true love affair. And while things go disastrously wrong and uh, it ultimately leads her to make um, one major morally reprehensible decision, this is someone who is motivated by the need for security, the need for home, the need for stability in her life, and frankly, love, which she's never known. This story also has biblical references and themes in it. The name of Phraim, how Eben attempts to secure his birthright, which is similar to Jacob. The allusion to the story of Peter, when Cabot says, build my church on a rock out of stones and I'll be in them. Eugene O'Neill was a devout Catholic until the age of 15, when he completely abandoned his faith. Why do you think he still included these references? Well, I think for someone who has had a devout faith in their lives or devoutly observed religious practice, no matter how much one might deny that later or distance themselves from it later, that imprint that was made on them is uh, irrevocable. And so one is always wrestling with the vestiges of that, be they positive or negative. And so I think that O'Neill certainly uh, is no exception. And in the character of Cabot, you find someone who has his own sort of singular understanding of God and what God is and how God is, and is sort of driven by that to an extreme degree. He believes that God is hard. He believes that God is in the stones and has chosen, because he heard the voice of God telling him to tend to this land, to create this farm out of a stony field when he had the opportunity to have gone out west and had a much more profitable farm on much more fertile ground. But he sees this as a command from God to live a hard life, to create something productive and beautiful out of something inhospitable. That's sort of how Cabot understands God in the play. Eugene O'Neill had a difficult life himself. How does this play 
relate to his own story? Well, I think a lot of people when reading O'Neill and understanding O'Neill sort of look at his work. One of the things that does come up is the um, extreme dysfunction of his family life. And O'Neill was kind of the founder of the dysfunctional American family trope of dramatic literature. It's mm-hmm. a little reductive to put it that way, but but when you look at Desire Under the Elms, uh, I think most notably, of course, uh, A Long Day's Journey into Night, these sort of founding mythologies of what the American family is in its underbelly are things that O'Neill was preoccupied with in his work. And I, I think it's, it's, it's certainly no coincidence that he had a family life full of heartbreak, trials, tragedy, and that that imprint on him also informed his preoccupation with it in his writing. I read that the first theatrical cast in Los Angeles that performed Desire Under the Elms, this was in the 1920s, was arrested for participating in an obscene work. And then they had to do a special performance of the play under oath for a jury. Would you talk about the scandal this play caused when it was first received? Well, I mean, think about it. In the 1920s, when you have a play that doesn't have the distance, say, of ancient Greek tragedy that depicts a stepmother and a stepson entering into an affair, and, of course, the the murder that happens as a result of it. I mean, it's not hard to imagine that people would have been shocked by this at that time. I think it's something, frankly, that people still find shocking. We were making discoveries during the rehearsal process that, you know, we would sort of stop and and sort of, you know, link the actions together and, and kind of find ourselves surprised at times because it is something that still is shocking. It's it's these are taboos that have yet to to be toppled in our civilized society. Yeah, I I read that you describe this play as scathingly erotic. Oh, it absolutely is. I've also described it as a bit of a fever dream, this play. It operates at a really high level of intensity. The scale and the scope of the emotions and what's at stake for the characters do operate on that scale of Greek tragedy. And the eroticism is also heightened. And it is a play that sort of lives and dies on that eroticism, that that's an undercurrent that creates a sort of through line and structure for the play. And it's inescapable in a a play like this. So did your cast work with an intimacy coordinator? Yes. Kristen Storla was our intimacy and fight director. And uh, one of the things that is so brilliant about her is that she is a very smart storyteller. And so every moment was examined, not only for the safety and emotional well-being of the actors, but to ensure that the storytelling would be in support of what we were going for with the play and to create this heightened sense of scale and scope and to watch her work and to work with her and to sort of uh, riff with her and bounce ideas together is, is really, it's a great, it's one of my favorite collaborations maybe ever. I always enjoy working with her anyway, but this show was particularly special and her input was particularly fruitful and impactful on the production. That is high praise. Freddie, would you tell us about the set and, in general, how the set, the lighting, and music help bring the story to life? Yes. Well, one of the things that, you know, we were going to do this play two years ago, and the world got in the way and decided it had other plans for us. (laughs) But what we wanted to do was go for a sense of what it meant to be inspired by Greek tragedy. And that was not to approach it with absolute dedication to realism, rather uh, certain abstracted elements, certain heightened elements, and that manifested throughout the design work. One of the images that Kat Conley, our scene designer, 
particularly grabbed onto was the imagery of the stones that you referenced earlier. When when Cabot says, you know, when, when referring to the stone walls, he says, you can read the years of my life in those stones. And so there are two massive stone walls at either end of the set. We're in a sort of alley traverse configuration with the audience on both sides. And at either end, these two massive rock walls are leaning in at an angle over the proceedings. And the play happens in a sort of open expanse of, of scenery. And so we were going for this sort of big scale in an intimate setting. If you look at then into the lights, sound, and costumes, you'll see quite a few anachronistic costume choices, which were meant also to think of this farm as a mythic place, a place that was spiritually thick and was not playing by the rules of the natural world necessarily. So there is a lot of swelling music that underscores certain moments. There is, as I mentioned, anachronistic costuming choices that create this farm or imagine this farm as its own world unto itself. And that was something that I think the design team captured really beautifully and evocatively in their work. You mentioned that you wanted to do this show two years ago and the world got in the way. I lo- or what did you say, Freddie? The world had other plans? I think, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Why was it important for Actors Express to present Desire Under the Alms? Well, you know, I'm mostly known, I think, for being a lover of contemporary work and for new plays, but I have a a real passion for American classics and looking at these plays that have defined our American theater and trying to sort of understand how they might connect with contemporary audiences. And so a play like Desire Under the Elms to me felt like a perfect opportunity to explore that resonance because in many ways it feels contemporary in its approach and its sensibility and its fearlessness in tackling taboo subjects in the sort of unabashed emotional scale that it attempts. And so I thought this was the perfect play to, to try to understand how contemporary audiences would, would, react to it and engage with it. And once we made the decision to do it, it was there was never a question of whether we would do it. It was always, you know, when will it be rescheduled? The idea of, of not doing it never even came up. Freddie Ashley, Artistic Director of Actors Express and Director of their production of Desire Under the Elms. The play is on stage through August 28th, and more information is on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. Coming up, City Lights producer Summer Evans celebrates Elvis Presley. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Today marks the 45th anniversary of Elvis Presley's death. The king of rock and roll might not be with us anymore, but his legacy lives on. Five-time world champion Elvis Presley tribute artist Dwight Eisenhower and his band will perform Presley's music at Eddie's Attic tomorrow evening. Accompanying them will be legendary keyboardist and songwriter Don Randy, who performed with Elvis on his 68 comeback special. City Lights producer Summer Evans recently spoke with the performers via Zoom, and Dwight began by talking about why the iconic televised special was so important to Elvis's career. Well, Elvis Presley had just gotten out of his movie contract. He had made, you know, 31 motion pictures and he wanted to get back to live performing. You know, he missed the the live audience and uh, just being able to do rock and roll again. And the 68 really allowed him to do that. You know, Um, it, it was a chance for him to get back to his roots and play the music that he wanted to play. And, and be with his original band members again and really bring that raw rock and roll back to Elvis Presley. And it's really the performance where he gained 
the crown back as the king of rock and roll. I mean, you've got to remember when Elvis was singing to animals in the movies, singing about old McDonald's farm, the Beatles were conquering America. So it's like, you know, he come back and he was like, hey, man, I'm the king of rock and roll and I've got my crown back. So that's really what the 68 special was. And it it actually turned it was not supposed to be that it was originally supposed to be a Christmas special where Elvis was going to be singing nothing but Christmas songs. And Elvis had a different vision. And of course, it went with Elvis's vision and become one of the most classic rock and roll shows of all time. Yeah, the uh, NBC producers definitely got a surprise. But I mean, it worked out for their benefit and how much this exploded. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, to this day, I mean, Elvis, as far as just the raw performances, where it was strictly Elvis and he had control of it. I mean, the 68 special is it is the performance where you truly see Elvis's creative side. Well, he had the, the whole time we were recording with a very large orchestra, a, a dynamite band. They were excellent, all the musicians that played on it. But he wanted to have his guys and just have his friends around and just be very close to the audience and just be himself. And I think he enjoyed that section probably better than anything we did. Mm-hmm. And the performance that he was doing was on this tiny stage with a bunch of people sitting around him. So where were you set up in this performance? I was set up in another room (laughs) (laughs) with the orchestra. Actually, on some of those scenes, there's, uh, I think there's just a little piano on one of the songs. Otherwise, it's just what you see is what you got, you know. And we had pre-recorded a whole bunch of stuff, too. Uh, I mean, a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You performed with Elvis and on the hits such as A Little Less Conversation, Memories, and If I Can Dream. When this show opened and he began performing Trouble and then going into Guitar Man, did you know this performance was going to be something special? Oh, yeah. Uh, They they had the best dancers, the best choreographers doing stuff. NBC spent a lot of money on this. It was a very big budget, and they took a lot of time to do it. That was important. And some of the arranging that's done on this show is is the best in those days for television, especially. It was like a the way to do it. You're looking for trouble? You came to the right place. You're looking for trouble? Just look right in my face. I was born standing up and talking back. in theaters, the new Elvis biopic directed by Baz Luhrmann is out. And this movie really gives audiences a great picture into the life of Elvis and his manager, Colonel Tom Parker. Spoiler alert, but there is a large portion in the film dedicated to this 68 comeback special. And the song that really takes center stage is If I Can Dream. Why was this considered a protest song? And what was this in response to? I think at the time, you know, Elvis Presley wanted a song that really spoke about the way the world was feeling. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. had just been assassinated in Elvis's hometown in Memphis, Tennessee. Robert Kennedy had just been assassinated. So all this stuff is happening. And Elvis wanted a song to close the special that spoke of peace, love, and brotherhood and and this song just the emotion that you could tell that elvis truly meant every single word he was singing about in this song because it truly was the way everybody at that time was feeling and i think it just really wrapped it all up into a song and the emotion he poured into it it was just the truth you know coming out Can dream of a warmer sun where hope. 
I mean, it really was revelatory. Right. He was trying to connect like race relations, but in a very kind of subtle way. I think in the movie he's, he quoted how like, if you can't say something, you sing it. And that was exactly how he exemplified that in the song. It, it just, I think it kind of expresses the future a little bit. Exactly. He used his platform the best way he knew. I mean, and what bigger platform is there than Elvis Presley? on live television. I mean, it just was the perfect opportunity to truly get out his feelings, but not only his feelings, but the way everybody was feeling, I'm sure, at that time. And, you know, as far as the breaking down race barriers, Elvis had been doing that from the beginning. I mean, a lot of people say Elvis stole black music or he, you know, he didn't do that. Elvis was highly influenced. I mean, this music was perhaps the biggest influence on Elvis Presley was the music of the black artists of the time, Little Richard, Chuck Berry, Fats Domino. These were all pivotal singers and entertainers, songwriters in Elvis. I mean, in, in the story of Elvis Presley, without those people there, I mean, there absolutely would not have been an Elvis Presley that we know of today. What Elvis did was come along and he took those songs and he bridged the gap between white and black. He made it accepted to hear these great songs by black artists. So the people who say Elvis stole the music, he did not steal the music. He he embraced the music. Mm, yeah. Dwight, you are a five-time world champion Elvis Presley tribute artist, which is an honor bestowed by the Elvis Presley Enterprises. What inspired you to pursue this as a career? You know, it just, uh, the, I think the love, the love of it from the time I was a kid, just the thrill I would get watching Elvis and these classic performances it just always affected me. And when I found out that I could sing, uh, you know, when I put a show together, I was, I was hooked, you know, I was hooked on that feeling of, and it's just a little bit of what he must've felt, you know, to, to be able to go out there and entertain audiences of that size. But, you know, I'm a fan, you know, I'm not just a performer who happens to find out one day he can sound like Elvis and look a little bit like him. You know, I, I'm a genuine fan. So what you're seeing on stage for me is, is from love. Mm. And do you think that's why you like the title of tribute artist versus impersonator? Yeah, you know, it's just uh, when you think of Elvis impersonator, you really do think of the guy in Vegas. And, and not that there's anything wrong with that at all. I mean, I have friends who make a great living and do a fine show out in Las Vegas. I'm not talking about those guys. I'm talking about the guys that you see, you know, singing telegram guys walking up and going, hey, baby, thank you very much. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's not what I am. I, I don't. I don't do that. You know, I, I, I truly focus on the music and, and the way it was projected out there by Elvis Presley. I, I, I'm not one who hubba hubbas it up and thank you very much, man. I, I, you know, I don't do that. <laughs> oh, man, I just want to hear you keep talking like Elvis because it feels like I'm interviewing him <laughs> right now. <laughs> man. Oh, man. How did you perfect his voice and mannerisms when you were preparing to do this as a career? The voice thing is the thing that comes the most natural for me. When I when I sing Elvis, I'm not trying. I mean, even when I sing other stuff, I mean, there's always a hint of Elvis' style in there. The voice comes very natural for me. Like Elvis was a natural baritone, and so am I. It makes to be able to sing in that range Elvis sing in. And then the tone of my voice is very similar when I sing to Elvis. The other stuff just come by years and years of rehearsing and practice and learning how to perfect stage makeup and, and the type of hair pieces that I use. I mean, this is all, you know, top of the line stuff that I use when I create my show. And then also keeping a bit of yourself in it too, to where it's not a full-blown carbon copy, because you're never going to do that. You have to put some of Dwight Eisenhower in there, or people are going to go, hey, man, this, you know, this guy thinks he's, a thinks he's a real deal, which I don't. Mm -hmm. Right. Is it ever hard when you come off the stage to go back into who Dwight Eisenhower is and remove the Elvis Presley? No, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, because I, like I said, I, I, I have a lot of faith in who Dwight Eisenhower is. I'm happy being Dwight Eisenhower. I mean, I, I love, I love what I do. I love Elvis Presley. I think he was the greatest artist that ever lived. But I'm, I'm happy being who I am and being a fan 
putting it out there, the music of Elvis Presley. Mm -hmm. And what audiences should know about this performance happening tomorrow evening is that you are actually singing on stage. This is not lip syncing of Elvis Presley songs. No, everything you will hear is 100% live. The music, the stories, the voice, everything is done live. I would not be a part of anything that, that has me lip syncing or anything like that. I, I take a lot of pride in, in being able to do what I do. It's all natural what you're going to hear. Maybe not what you're going to see is all natural because I got a lot of makeup on and wigs and, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, but certainly the voice will be all natural. <laughs> you know, you know what, Dwight, when, when I think about in retrospect, what, what you're doing, you're doing something very important for people, for, for the new generation and for my generation, because you're keeping it going. And, and it's, a, it's an era that will never be repeated. It, it's an important thing because it's become part of our history, especially musically, you know. It, it's fun. I'm looking forward to doing this. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing, especially after this movie, how many people that I see at these shows now that are bringing not only the original Elvis fans, like the grandmother who's the Elvis fan, but also their daughter, their grandchildren. So it's like this movie has really, it's brought a whole new audience to Elvis and his music and this type of music, you know, and, and as long as that keeps happening, I mean, Elvis Presley, these legendary artists will never die. Elvis tribute artist Dwight Eisenhower and legendary keyboardist Don Randy. Their performance, Elvis, One Night With You, is at Eddie's Attic tomorrow evening. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights on WABE, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Atlanta comedian Catherine Blanford tells us about her new comedy album, Salt Daddy. Plus, we'll hear about the She ATL Summer Theater Festival. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org. There you'll find a complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights executive producer and host is Lois Reitzes. Summer Evans is our producer and our engineer is Shelly Canavy. I'm senior producer Kim Drobes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow Lois on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WAB yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.